So yeah, the book is called The Puzzle Master and it is puzzly. I love that adjective actually. I think I'm going to, you know, going, going to take that and use it from now on. It's a very puzzly book um, in structure and in theme and the characters. Um, all of it sort of revolves around puzzles. The Puzzle Master is a novel about a puzzle constructor named Mike Brink who is brought to a prison upstate where a woman who's been convicted of murder um, has drawn a mysterious puzzle and he's been asked to solve it. And as soon as he begins solving the intricacies of this puzzle, he's drawn into an ancient mystery that takes him into questions of consciousness and immortality and religion. So I am just going to dive right into talking about the book Um, and kind of one of the first observations I have about this, first of all, charmed by the book in so many different ways. And I, and I think that I was like struggling to think about how I was going to approach this because there's so many elements to it. So that's the first thing I'm going to say is that there's like a bunch of different elements to this book in a book called puzzle master, where it's like, it's almost like all these things kind of fit together in a puzzly way. So um, yeah, it seems like it's a lot to, to contend with um, getting it all to work together. Was that, was it a challenge at all? So yeah, the book is called The Puzzle Master and it is puzzly. I love that adjective actually. I think I'm going to, you know, going, going to take that and use it from <laughs> now on. It's a very puzzly book. Um, in structure and in theme and the characters, um, all of it sort of revolves around puzzles. And um, just to give a little bit of backstory, um, the main character of this book is a man who is an ingenious puzzle solver. And he's brought to a prison um, in upstate New York to solve a puzzle that a prisoner has drawn. Um, and so that's the front story, right? But then, as you mentioned, there are all of these different elements that are sort of bubbling up in the background. There's um, a kind of horror element of, um, you know, the prisoner's backstory of how she got to prison, which I actually sort of dramatize and, and um, put in the novel. And then there's an even far, you know, an either even back backstory, like two steps <laughs> back set in um, late 19th century Prague. Uh, that explains what happened in that house um, that brought uh, that character, Jess Price, into the situation where she would go to prison. So, yeah, there's a lot of layers. Um, You know, people who have read it have told me that the layers um, are something that entangles them in a kind of way. Like they want, they as they go, they're sort of lifting up these layers and they feel enmeshed in it and they don't really want to leave until until they understand how they go together. So that's a long way to answer the question that, yes, it was a little bit complicated to put together. Um, and that was um, by design. I don't think you can really call a book the puzzle master and have it be a very simplistic structure, um, which is what I'm contending with now. I'm writing a follow-up book called The Puzzle Box um, to this, and it has to be complicated, right? (laughs) Otherwise it's not going to live up to its name. Um, so yes. And and as a writer, I really enjoy that element Mm -hmm. of, of, um, writing is finding how all the pieces go together, how these characters relate to each other, um, how, you know, our puzzle solver becomes involved with this woman in prison and how their story together answers the puzzle, um, which is ultimately what happens, right? Like he becomes involved and her information helps him solve this sort of ancient mystery. Yeah. And um, 
one of the observations I made um, about the way it all ties together is like the kind of generationality of it. So there's like the things that are happening in the, in the present time, things that happened in the recent past, things that happened in the farther distant past and where like they kind of all answer each other. So even um, a, a thing that you didn't um, mention is that there's kind of a tech tech conspiracy as, as part yes. of the book. And like, so the te- present day text conspiracy, how that ties into the kind of religious stuff has is is folded together with the stuff that happened more recently. So, like, what I'm getting at is like <laughs> it all works, and it works over a spectrum of time in a way where it's like it's nice that it's not just like all these dominoes happen right now. It's like this bubbled up because of something that because of a passion of this family member, which leads us to this thing from the way past and everything. So. Um, I feel like you must have tried, like you were saying, tried really hard to weave everything together in a way that made it all fit, uh, because it, it's, it's intricate. Yeah. I mean, the, the, um, I just got a Kirkus review, which I don't really like to read my the reviews, <laughs> but people have sent them to me. So I, I have read it and it calls it, um, it describes it as the Kabbalah meets the New York times crossword puzzle. I thought was like a really good way to bring two completely disparate things together, right? In one sentence. And it kind of does describe, I think, uh, the nature or the the texture of this book, because these elements, you know, you're right, there's a sci-fi element in some ways, or like a tech element, which personally, I don't feel like is so sci-fi, honestly, like the way that I've written it and the way that I I sort of view the world. I don't see the things that happen in the book, which deal with um, questions of immortality and what happens to to consciousness after death. And can we capture consciousness in tech in some way? Like, I don't feel like that's so sci-fi and that we're so far away from that. Um, But there's that element. And then um, there's a horror element, as I mentioned, where there's this sort of haunted porcelain doll. Um, and that seems like a really disparate thing to go to side by side with those questions. But then you think, I mean, for me anyway, as as an author and as a creative person sort of questioning these things, can I pull out this thing about immortality and haunting and spirits? And where does that come from, this idea of the archaeology, if you think about it, of um, immortality, and then it brought me back to thoughts of like the golem, right, and yep. religious and religious themes that ha- you know have been circulating through literature forever. So, you know, they seem, I think, on the surface as being very different, but in my mind, when you start digging a little bit deeper, these questions are very, very similar. And um, another reader once, you know, sort of said that it's ancient magic, sort of meeting future magic, and I love that conflation of these things because it does sort of revolve. I mean, if someone 200 years ago looked at us, what we're doing right now, they would be like, Oh my God, alchemy, right? Like what the hell's going on here? (laughs) These people are in two different countries talking to each other and it's like in real time, you know, it'd blow their mind. So yeah, yeah, I, I do think that's the, and that's the purpose of writing for me, right? Is to make those connections and to help readers um, enjoy like the process of making those connections. Um, so yeah, I, all of that, you know, goes into my love of puzzles and 
how I feel like this book um, allows people to, f- in some ways, feel like they're solving a puzzle as they go through mm-hmm. it. They're like, okay, that answers that question, and oh, that answers that one, and and it's an enjoyable, fun process. I can go in like eight directions because there's a lot of things that you know, <laughs> <laughs> we think about. Um, one thing I was thinking about that I think that you did uh, that you did well with this book is. Um, I think that, and I think Sadie Hartman was talking about how it's, it, it kind of defies classification because there's a lot, and even how we've been talking about it so far, it, it doesn't necessarily sit just in one genre. Um, but there's definitely like an action slash thriller kind of, uh, thing going on. And, um, I think about how I've read stories that, you know, weren't for me where it's just like chasing a thrill after a thrill after thrill and not finding something deeper in the story. And I'm not going to criticize that because sometimes that's fun. And like people, um, people sometimes just want that kind of thing. But with your story, it is thrilling and it's suspenseful and it's got those elements to it, but it also manages to have you kind of analyze deeper thoughts about like you said, like spiritual stuff or religious stuff or um, um, yeah, like how all that kind of ties together. So um, I think one of the satisfying, excuse me, one of the satisfying things about this book was that it did kind of challenge me to think deeper, um, even outside of the puzzle stuff, just like think about those things more. So you just hit on something that I was thinking about myself as I, you know, as I, I'm working on a new book, as I said, and so every day I'm like trapped in my little office, like banging my head against the desk, <laughs> trying to think about why I'm doing this. And for me, writing, the, so first of all, this is a thriller. Like I think the genre, the overall genre is a thriller. It's classified as a thriller or a mystery, right? Mm-hmm. But for me, um, if there's not something deeper in 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 the movement through the book, like if the thing that's discovered at the end or the outcome or the payoff is like, oh yeah, she gets the guy or yeah, they get the money from the heist or oh yeah, they figured out who killed his family, right? Like that sort of like baseline thriller um, genre trope is really boring to me. Like Mm -hmm. I love the action um, of thrillers and I like the fast pace, um, but if it doesn't have a bigger sort of intellectual engagement for me, I'm out. Like I just, yeah. in film too, right? Like I, you know, I like the pace of Fast and Furious, but if there's nothing there, like that's engaging me intellectually, I'm not, I'm not there with them. Um, so in all of my books, in some way, I like to um, make it interesting for myself intellectually. And, and I ask a question. Um, and, you know, I guess the overall question of this book has to do with, um, consciousness, right? And what our what our brain is capable of, and that brings me back to um, Mike Brink, who is you yeah. know the, the hero. Um, and I'll just tell people a little bit about him um, because he's so he was a sort of average guy um, as a teenager. He was a football player. He was really good at it. He had all of this potential to become um, a college football player, and he was injured. Um, on the field and the left hemisphere of his brain was damaged in a way that he developed something called sudden savant syndrome, which is an actual medical um, 
a medical condition, very, very rare. But what it does is the, the people who acquire this suddenly have a skill that they didn't have before. And for some people, it's like foreign languages and some people it's music. You know, there's a story of one guy who just started playing these amazing classical pieces after having a brain injury. Um, and this fascinated me when I uh, first started reading about this condition. Um, and so this character developed an ability to do higher math. He has an, you know, a photographic memory and he's really, really good at solving puzzles of all sorts. Um, and so his way of entering into the question of what is consciousness is through a brain injury and through what his brain can do. Um, we have on this other side, uh, this tech guy entering into the, the question of what is consciousness by can it survive our body and, and what does it do? And then we have in this other way, the spiritual question of what is the soul and it mm -hmm. can that be moved from being to being and so all of this is to say is that um the question the sort of overriding question that i posed for myself when writing this book was is what is conscious you know what is consciousness to, you know just a small question but it's something i wanted to <laughs> explore. a little you know a little thing to explore but um yeah it's not just like do they get the money at the end or right. you know do they like I really wanted to set the bar high, which is not always easy and it doesn't please everybody, I think, because some people want to have that very kind of um, clear, easy ending. Um, and those que you know, questions that are so enormous and that have uh, you know, stumped people for thousands and thousands of years are not going to be wrapped up easily in a novel. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And then, so like, I usually don't talk about. Eh, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm as careful about spoilers as you want me to be, and I usually don't talk about endings, obviously, especially since the book isn't out for another couple months, ish. Um, but I will say that um, the ending really poses something to think about uh, in in a religious way that I was not expecting. So uh, there was a little bit of a re revelation on that side of things which I loved. I thought it was fantastic. Um, so, um, but I also came up uh, non-religious. So one of the things about the book that I was concerned about, anytime there's a religion that's built into a book um, or reference in a book, I'm always concerned that that part's not going to feel like make sense to me because I don't have like the prior reference knowledge for yeah. it. But um with the way that the religious, the religion part of it was incorporated, I felt like you, um, through the flashbacks to the past and everything, um, did a great job of, of not putting anybody in a situation where they wouldn't understand how this is significant or relevant. Um, so I just said a bunch of stuff and I think that was, it, it was inspired by praising. There was kind of a little revelation at the end, uh, and the religious side of things. Um, but, um, in addition to the the general consciousness piece, there's like a greater kind of like existence piece to it too. Yeah. Yeah. And so the religious piece, so the puzzle, the main puzzle in the book is called the God puzzle, right? So yeah, there is a, a kind of um, element of religion, but I would almost say that it's an almost like an archeological element or like an sure. ancient artifact element of religion. Um, I'm, 
really interested in, um, so the kind of maps and artifacts, I guess you could say, or uh, tools that religious people have used to find their way towards some sort of spirituality. And one of them that I found when I was doing research uh, about the topic that is in the book, um, it were these 13th century prayer circles that a mystic named Abu Lafia had created. And for everyone who's listening to this or watching this, you can go to the British Library and just Google like British Library, Abu Lafia prayer circles or um, Torah or something along those lines. And up will come an interactive document where you can actually look through them through this book um, of 13th century, amazingly beautiful and very mysterious looking symbols that he made. Um, And no one, I mean, I'm not an expert on this, right? I'm not an expert on Kabbalah or Abu Lafia, but from what I gathered when I was doing this research, these uh, circles were used um, as devices to sort of create a kind of conscious experience where you could experience a mystical revelation or something, right? And I found that completely fascinating. It's almost like, you know, someone you know, dropping acid or, uh, to, you know, have a revelation or microdosing to like think differently. Right. But this is the Mm -hmm. 13th century and it's with a text. Um, so yeah, but the danger of using something like that is exactly as what you said, like it could really confuse or throw some people or scare people away. So I was really careful to make it simple, you know, like it's, all that information that I just said is some in some way in the book. It's explained um, by a character and um, it's just said outright. So there's no prior information that you need to bring into the book, yep. um, which I think, I mean, oh my goodness, if I like expected people to know this stuff before coming into the book, it would be impossible. Right. So, um, and it is um, while it, I think that that ending, you know, the ending of that thread that, you know, the God puzzle solution is a huge part of the book and like something that I really wanted to be in the book and constructed a lot so that I could have that in the book. Um, it's not the, the most, um, it's not, I wouldn't say it's not something that, uh, is dominating the book, Right. right? It really comes in at the end. And I feel like people who have read it and have talked to me about it said that like, it's just, it's like such a fun ride right through it that like when you get to this kind of serious thing at the end, it's like, Oh, and then there's that (laughs) and there's that too. Right. Um, so yeah, it, it, I, I hope, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I can't ever read my book for the first time, but I hope that it feels, uh, like, you know, of that the book itself is an experience that's really fun. And then this other thing at the end is a payoff that feels meaningful, right? Like that's the most important thing to me. Yeah. And balanced too. Um, And one thing I would say that I didn't really think about until you were talking earlier was um, not necessarily, I'm going to say this in, in awkward ways and then maybe you can refine it or tell me I'm wrong, but like the whole idea of, um, how they were doing things in the past and how um, Jameson Sedge is trying to do things in the present day are either kind of analogs for each other or like just doing things, doing the same thing in a way that we 
based on what we have available to us now. So like incorporating technology because it exists, whereas in the past it was doing things a different way, but like still trying to get the same result, just doing things in a different way. Does that make sense when I'm Yeah, it totally does. And my response to that is like, (laughs) I don't think human beings have changed, right? Yes. I think, you know, given the tools that we have now, human beings... 4,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago would have the same goals that we do, which is love, comfort, and meaning, right? And in Jameson Sedge's case, longevity or trying to live beyond our, you know, our frail, limited bodies. Um, So yeah, I I think it's really, I think that's an interesting point. Um, And something that I've always, I find, you know, it's not conscious, but when I look back at my work, um, this is the fourth novel I've written, and all of them have this element of kind of archaeological layering or whatever, of like digging in the past in some way. Like I had a novel called Angelology where there was, you know, a section that was like 75 pages long of someone in the year 2000, right? Like, so clearly that's something that's of interest to me. Um mm. I would like to write a book, I think maybe my next one, that doesn't have that just to see what happens. Um, but who knows? We'll see. So maybe for a reader, when they see how things were done you know, in the past and see how things are being done, kind of with a similar goal outcome in the, in the present, it does kind of illustrate that, that like overall, the whole time we've just been trying to, to do the same thing, but like using different tools or whatever. Yeah, I think so. <clears throat> and um, I think, you know, in the way that the the direction that Mike Brink, the main character is going is, you know, a direction that in, in my mind sort of proves that, right? Like that, you no, know, the cerebral elements that he sort of embodies leads him back again and again to some basic elements of like love and and connection with people. One of his big problems is that he just, you know, this injury um, gave him a kind of superpower, right? Like he can look at a situation that you and I would look at and he would see it in an absolutely different way. Um, But at the same time, it's made him really removed from other people. And while he really tries to connect with people, that's hard. So, um, you know, I think one of the things that draws me to that character and why I want to write a second book and why I've written this book um, about him is just that dichotomy between all of us who are so in our heads sometimes and then the physical world and other people and connecting with them and watching this character struggle, right? He struggles the whole book to make a connection with someone. Um, so, yeah, I don't know where I was going with that, but there it is. <laughs> well, there is the the love story aspect of it, so we can we can kind of shift to that. Where I, um, with the Mike Brink and and Just Price characters, um, walked away from the story feeling like. Um, there wasn't uh, selfish goals there. Like their goal was just to be happy. It was very personal and stuff. Whereas opposed to like some of the other, you know, players in the story, 
we're a little bit more ambitious or greedy or, or selfish or, or whatever that is. And, and I really, from them just felt like it was just these two kind of beings that the world was encroaching on their happiness in a way. So that's so interesting that you say that. Yeah. Because those two really, I mean, Jess Price, she's the woman who, um, finds the porcelain doll and ends up, uh, you know, everything goes very bad and she ends up in prison. Um, And it's true, you know, her ambition, her great ambition in the book is really just to have herself back, right? right? Uh, Quite literally. And, um, and also I think by the end to do the same thing that, that Mike Brink, the, the, the puzzle master character wants to is to have a connection with another human being. So I feel like that, I think you're right. Like it's a very kind of simple connection, one that's very human and one that all of us uh, hopefully find, you know, with another person at some (laughs) point. Um, Whereas, yeah, Jameson Sedge, that's the tech guy, right? That's the um, guy who I'm not going to say too much about what he does, but you know, he, he does all these wild things. He's very ambitious. And even, you know, if you think about the other characters, I suppose maybe, you know, there's a villain character, Cam Putney, although I don't, I I would argue that he's not so villainous, although he is a villain, but I I like him a lot, um, which might speak to, you know, the kind of people I like. Um, But he, I feel like he, you know, he's very understandable, right, as a character because he's, he, you know, his his motivations for doing what he does. He's kind of like a henchman for Sedge in some ways, um, sort of acting out uh, what Sedge needs him to do, the violence and and so on in the book. Um, He's doing it for a reason that we can all understand, right? He's a single father or sometimes a single father. Um, He's with his daughter. He's divorced and he has a daughter and and he's very protective of her and has been able to give her this better life um, because of the things he's doing, which are, very morally, you know, in the in a gray area, if not completely illegal. So yeah, yeah I mean, I feel I, what I think that you were saying, or that how I'm interpreting what you were saying, is that the character, the motivations, and and the emotions in the book are relatively relatable, and um, you know, when sort of put in front of this background of kind of crazy religious stuff and and wild tech stuff. It, it gives a, um, for me anyway, and, and what I hope to do is that it creates a very like relatable entry point into those ideas and into the story. And it keeps, hopefully it keeps you engaged because you want to spend time with those people. Yes, I'll agree. And I'll even go so far as to say that um, Jameson Sedge gets that treatment to, to, a, to a degree as well, where even though ostensibly he could be labeled the bad guy um, in times learning about kind of his goals or plans or just the general concept. Sometimes it doesn't sound that bad. Like sometimes it just sounds like it's just like curiosity gone. Curiosity with a budget basically is kind of what it sounds like sometimes. (laughs) Right. Curiosity with endless money. Right. And also, I mean, there's a spectrum, right? Like there's a spectrum of like what we do every day. Like we take our vitamins and we watch our weight and, you know, we want to live longer than, um, you know, 
I don't know, a hundred years ago, people were living to like 45, right? And now the lifespan is, you know, early 80s or something. Like, so there's a spectrum of wanting to live, you know, how long we want to live and what we'll do to live longer. Um, Whether that's moving in a direction, like I think it might be in the future with, you know, bioengineering and various other things that could, that humans could do to extend their life, um, you know, using AI or using different kinds of technology, using different kinds of storage, you know, to, to keep our consciousness forever, you know, alive. Like all of those things feel like a spectrum to me. And as I was saying before, it's a very human spectrum, right? You know, there's not that much difference from that. And, you know, a Greek um, who is, uh, you know, praying for immortality or, you know, doing all of these things to live longer um, and and sort of projecting themselves into godlike, you know, with godlike figures that have the power to do all the things that Jameson Sedge is trying to do. So, yep. yeah, um, it's a fun it's fun to think about. Right. Like for me, this all of this is very fun to think about. Um, but I will say it sounds you know pretty, pretty heady and kind of brainy. But um, <laughs> the the real skill for me, like the hardest thing that I did in writing this book was not the research or not, you know, these thoughts about, you know, sort of expressing thoughts about consciousness and all of this. It was really in making this feel like a game or a puzzle um, sure. and feel like once you fell in, it was enjoyable and uh, light enough to pull you through. So like that was my biggest challenge, I think, as an, as an author. Well, and I guess to that point, I guess, we, I, I don't know if we acknowledge it directly, but yeah, it, it's, it's, you know, it's, a, it's, I think it's between three and 400 pages. So it's, it's a handful of pages, but man, it's got a good pace to it. So um, I would say for people who are worried about something that so far we're talking about, like you said, a lot of really kind of high concept you know, it sounds stuff. like Umberto Echo or something, right? <laughs> like very heavy and like. Yeah, it, it paces wonderfully um so it's easy it's easy to read and easy to follow along with um even though it you know it's got a lot going on so i like you were saying that probably had to be challenging to not get mired down and and not sacrifice pace for you know uh loading it up with all this this thought totally i mean i cut so many pages from it it was much longer um and you know like the for example there's a section in prague um, which, which is one of my favorite sections of the book. And it was twice as long originally. Um, much more research was layered in and it just felt too heavy, right? Like, and so I cut it. <laughs> um, and that's very hard to do, as you can imagine. But yeah. um, something that I guess I've learned over the course of writing a few books is that the, you know, the overall product is so much more important to me than that particular chapter or that particular section. Um, and if someone walks away saying, oh, that really felt like um, a fluid read, right? Like it was consistent throughout, like, yeah. it, you know, the beginning was the same vibe as the end in some ways, um, then I'm really happy about that. And I feel like it was a, a, a successful endeavor. Yeah, I I think that I think you pulled it off. So it's definitely one thing that listeners should should feel good about is that or rest easy if they're worried about that is like it's got a great 
great and consistent pace to it. Yeah. Switching gears a little bit. Um, one of the element of the book, which wasn't, you know, present a lot, but um, is fascinating is the whole doll aspect of it. So there's a, like you, you had said a kind of a, did you say possessed doll? I said a haunted doll. Yeah. Haunted doll. Um, so there's that, there's that doll. There's but that it's, doll. Yeah. But it's, yeah. <laughs> As my publicist says, she's like, eek. <laughs> right. Oh, doll. But there's the way the, the, um, the history of it um, and the, like, it, it ties into this kind of prestigious doll maker. Um, and, and we get to see a lot of the, the history of that doll maker and um, their, their craft. So did you, did you have to do some, A, was dolls something that you cared about before? And then B, how much research was involved in incorporating that? So, um, yeah, I was not interested really in dolls per se. I've always been really freaked out by porcelain dolls. Um, I feel like they're really creepy looking. And, um, you know, I went, I think it was, I went to a museum in Newport, Rhode Island. That's like a porcelain doll museum. And you walk in and it just feels like there's trouble brewing, right? Like something's going to happen. And also my, and you know, I didn't really think about this until I started writing the book, but I inherit my great grandmother had a porcelain doll that she left my mother. And then my mother has given it to me. And that kind of transmission of, of babies that, you know, women give to their daughters, give to then they give them to their daughters. And this sort of um, almost simulacrum of motherhood or maternal um, grooming in some way, like preparing girls to be mothers, like has always freaked me out. And um, I'm not really the most maternal person in some ways. Um, in some ways I am, I suppose. But um I became fascinated with the history of porcelain dolls because they really are an art form. If you start to dig and look at how they were made in the 19th century and early 20th century, there's some amazing German um, and French bisque porcelain dolls. And I actually spoke with uh, an expert at from Sotheby's. She was at Sotheby's and then she moved and she's now um, teaching. Uh, she's a professor of porcelain. Um, and a character in my book is based on that woman that I mm -hmm. was, you okay. know, that I found. Um, but anyway, and she told me so much about the history of porcelain dolls. And so then I began reading about it. And La Moriette, um, the character who writes the letter, he's the doll maker um, that's in the book. He uh, is based on a real doll, French doll maker. And I found you know, documents about the store that his family owned and the methods that he used. Um, it's all fiction, of course, right? Like I've changed a lot um, and him going to Prague, totally fiction. But it gave me like the the material and um, I don't know, it gave me the confidence to write about something like that because, you know, whenever a kind of supernatural element comes into a story, my First, I, first of all, I love supernatural um, elements coming into stories, but my first instinct as a writer is you have to have all of the other stuff and the research really grounded and like 
a hundred percent there so that mm-hmm. it feels real. Cause even just a little touch of the supernatural, like it has to be so weighted on the other side, like really researched and real feeling for me anyway. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, the, the porcelain doll part. And then I think, what was the other question? Do I like, did I like porcelain dolls before? And and what kind of research? You oh, were doing okay. To, so I answered so yeah. both of those. Yeah. I mean, I did a lot of, re- I did a lot of research and I can even, I'll send you a picture of my grandmother's porcelain doll um, <laughs> oh, cool. in the show notes if you want, um, if you have yeah, those. That'd be awesome. um, and it's really quite scary. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's enough to um, inspire, you know, a crime in a novel because this wow. is all the backstory, right? Like this is the mm-hmm. crime that, that, that um, happened uh, through Jess Price, I'll say, right? Like um, that ended, landed her in prison that put her in this position where she needed the puzzle master to come in and solve this puzzle and help her get out of it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so like all of that that I just was describing is really, you know, a fraction of, of the novel. It's the, it's the backstory. But I think, you know, I think you mentioned that you felt this way too earlier. It really... Um, it, it makes that front story feel really uh, understandable in a way that if you just, you know, said all of the stuff that happened, if you just narrated it rather than dramatizing it, I think it would be harder to believe. You're hundred percent right about that. And now I was thinking about, and this is where I'm probably not get out. You can fill in gaps if, if you feel like it's not spoiling things, but I liked how um, the making of the porcelain doll back when it was made had an element of um, we have a person who is like the, a master crafts person and um, we're going to ask them to do something for us without really kind of explaining what the goal is. Like we just, you know, we're going to have him make this thing for us. Um, And uh, the, the idea that it took something of such like perfect, amazing crafts craftsmanship to, uh, kind of achieve their more kind of supernatural goal or whatever. Um, I thought that was cool. But then, then I think about um, Mike Brink uh, with his abilities being used to solve puzzles, not knowing what those puzzles were being used for. So there was kind of an element of that in the past and in the present as well. Yeah. I mean, I don't think we ever know, do we? Like yeah. <laughs> we never know what our art is being used for um, or, you know, when we make something um, I always like, you know, just to, you know, with me, with writing a book, I always hope that um, people take good things from it. Um, but, you know, people are individual individuals with different perspectives and people can take, can interpret things in any way they want. Um, I love that you brought up the process of making the porcelain doll um because that's that's like what you know so much was cut <laughs> like i feel like i'm oh, gonna send yeah. this, this whole longer section because <laughs> i did so much research into how yeah. porcelain works right because porcelain it's in itself not to bore people here but it's really a fascinating substance and it's one that until i think the 17th century europeans did not know how it was made right it was it was a chinese um art and it was uh, a technology that China had created, but no one in the West could figure it out. Um, And that in itself is a totally fascinating story about how it was at one point valued more than gold, like these very fragile things. And, and so the history of porcelain making um, 
in some way funnels into the store, into my story um, through that doll that gets made. Because of course, you know, the doll maker likes to talk about the process as you right. know, all of us artists like to do. And um, so, um, yeah, I, I, I'm glad you brought that up. And that was something that was interesting to you because um, it's fascinating where, you know, going back to what I was saying about getting, too bogged down in that, right? Like as a, as you know, for everyone out there who's listening, who's a writer, you know what I mean? <laughs> like it's easy to fall in love with, with things like that, like with the research or the setting for, you know, this is another fault of mine is I can fall in love with a setting and write 10 pages about, you know, the beautiful uh, architecture and, you know, the way that the fabric folded and blah, blah, blah. Like I could go on forever. And, and in Angelology, my first novel, um, I, I sometimes did, right? <laughs> like okay. I, I really just let myself go and like was very descriptive about stuff that was not related to the plot. So in this book, it was very important to me um, to keep, you know, layers of that or touches of that, of the research, keep it in, but cut out all the fat so that it moved at a pace that, that, would, that would be enjoyable. Well, it's good you didn't cut the whole thing because like, you said it is one of those topics that you don't know how interesting it is until someone kind of gives you a glimpse of that. So um, yeah, that was, that was really fascinating. And if you have like cut scenes, you're going to send me like, I absolutely welcome it. Cause that sounds oh awesome. My God. Actually I will. <laughs> I'm thinking about putting that whole chapter, like the, the cut chapters on my website and just being like, if you really loved this porcelain stuff, here's more. Yeah. Because there is more. (laughs) The descriptiveness thing um, you you mentioned made me think of, um, in my mind, I was calling it like the Anne Rice problem uh, because I haven't read much Anne Rice, but the couple of books that I've read, she is just phenomenal at describing like furniture and um, like stuff like that in a way where it's like, that was a whole page just describing like the furniture in a room. And it was to me something that was distracting, but um, it's obvious that that's something that, you know, in her mind is like an important part of the story or whatever. But to me, it was like, okay, can we, can we learn about the vampires or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And, and I get that. And you know, what's interesting is that when I was a kid, you know, when I was like 13 and 14, I was devouring Anne Rice. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that, you know, people who are interested in art and, and design and stuff like that, they do get a little bit caught up in the artistic details of whether it's paintings or, you know, whether it's this velvet chair or, you know, whatever that Anne Rice writes so well about. Um, But I think as time goes on for me, right, I got it out of my system. I mean, I still like to have it there, right? I I think that having those sort of gorgeous um, descriptions are, that's important to me. And there, you know, I've read so many books. I've, I'm the horror columnist for the New York times book review. I don't know if, yeah, if oh, I mentioned, if we talked about that, but so <laughs> I get a lot of novels, right. Um, I read a lot and I, I do read horror. I, I read thrillers. I read mystery. I read a lot. Um, and it's something over the course, I think of my life as a writer, but also as a reader, you just internalize when it's too much. Right. And I think 
for me as a beginning writer, I just loved doing that so much that I just let myself do it and no one stopped me. Right. Like none of my editors were like, <laughs> get this, get this out of here. Um, and still they wouldn't, I think I, my editor is pretty, is a wonderful editor, but I think she is respectful and wouldn't cut out my prose. It was me who, you know, I was the one who decided let's cut this down and make it faster. Sure. Um, and I've gotten to a point in my, my time of talking about books where I try my best not to talk bad about things. So like, there's probably people who are like, man, I just love the way that this feels when they're reading an Anne Rice book and stuff. So like, great, you know, like I'm sure that that's a great reading experience for people. Um, but there's like, so there's, I feel like the challenge as an author, which I am not, so I'm just interpreting. Um, there's the challenge of crafting the story you want to craft. There's, you know, incorporating all the elements that are necessary, making sure it all makes sense. There's like all these things, but then there's like an efficiency of, of um, the way that you say things. That's an, an, like an additional art that um, is like just another challenge you have to throw on top of all the other stuff you have to do. So um, especially <laughs> when, writing, you know, like I've decided like that the genre of this series is the overarching, you know, so the overarching um, uh, genre is a thriller, right? If mm -hmm. you decide to write a thriller, it has to move. Yeah. Like the art of compression, the art of compression is key, but I still yeah. want it to be me, right? Like I still, I'm, I came from like a literary, I hate these categories by the way, but <laughs> since we're talking about genre and, you know, you mentioned there's all these genres within my books, I came from kind of a literary background or so-called literary. I went to the Iowa Writers Workshop where plot was not really a thing, right? Like it was the poetry of the words on the page. Um, the, the emotions of the characters in the short story. And one, I don't write short stories. And two, um, I, while I am interested in character and um, emotion, I, like I really like story. Like I yeah. grew up, as I said, reading Anne Rice, Stephen King, V.C. Andrew. Like those were the books that like would sort of maroon me in a chair in the library and I wouldn't get up till it was done. Mm -hmm. And um, <clears throat> so, uh yeah, it was really a learning process for me to unlearn the so-called literary tropes and and learn how to do these other ones. But at the same time, I want me in my books. So, yeah. you know, walking that line between who am I and what is my vision as a person, which does tend to skew more literary in some ways, um, but also encompasses fast writing and, and exciting sequences and concept and concepts like that are the ones that I explore in this book. Um, all of that has to be wrapped into one thing. And so maybe this form, this like puzzly form, as you called it, the puzzly book is maybe <laughs> the best, best fit for me. Cause I'm kind of, you know, uh, I'm not one thing. Yeah. And I think the overall thought for me on that is um, there's nothing that got left behind in this book. Um, well, that is such a, that's such a nice thing to say. Yeah. So, yeah. I think Joyce Carol Oates, I heard her say, I heard, I think I heard her say this, or I read a quote somewhere that when she finishes a book, she's like, oh, okay, I can die now. <laughs> like <laughs> there's this feeling that um, when you finish a book and you, and there's nothing left behind, um, you can say, okay, that's me. Like if yeah. I leave something for this world, there it is. And it's true. I feel like in the, in the puzzle master, 
I put all of me in there. Um, I put different character points of view, men and women, past and present, all the kind of things that I'm interested in, um, the kind of writing I like. So yeah, thank you. That's such, I really appreciate you saying that because, um, you know, I work alone in a little box of a room and I don't hear feedback <laughs> very, yeah. very often. Um, all of this, and we haven't really talked too much about puzzles specifically, but so I was explaining, I talked about this book a lot to my girlfriend as I was reading it. And, um, like, uh, when I was just kind of giving her the general, you know, what the jacket says about the book, um, she was excited about the idea of puzzle masters and like an actual like person who's, whose um, occupation is, is a puzzle person. And she mentioned, Oh man, I have to look it up. Cause I can't remember the guy from, is it Will Shorts? Yeah. She's yeah. like, kind of like Will Shorts. And I was like, it's funny you mentioned it. She has like a specific acknowledgement in the book about the puzzle specific people who inspired and helped and everything. And she mentioned him and, um, and she's like, yeah, I wonder how she, you know, connected to, to him. And I was like, well, she writes for the New York times. So I wonder if that had anything to do with it, but, uh, well, it, um, wasn't how- <laughs> through that. it wasn't through that. It, um, a a friend who used to know, work with him somewhere, gave me his email address and I just cold called. I like, I just wow. sent him an email and said, hi, <laughs> you know, I'm writing this novel. It involves puzzles. I happen to not live that far from him. He lived like an hour South of me in New York. I lived upstate New York and he lived in Westchester somewhere. And I said, can we talk? And he so very generously said yes and invited right. me to his house. And he showed me his puzzle collection and, which is completely amazing, by the way, and um, unlike anything I had seen before, of course. <laughs> so, yeah, um, that experience really laid the foundation, uh, again, for feeling confident to write about that subject. Of course, I did a lot of reading. And then also, I am not a puzzle person. Uh, I love I like the idea of puzzles more than I actually like sitting down and doing them, um, <laughs> which I think is why this you know, this as a concept was really uh, cool for me to do um, and to work on. But I get very frustrated if I get stuck in a puzzle and can't get out because yeah. I, I want to finish it. Right. Like and if I can't finish it, it's just very frustrating. So I worked with um, two professional puzzle constructors to actually make there's some puzzles in the book um, that act as plot points. And so I had two puzzle constructors uh, one who's really great with words and crosswords and one who's really great with numbers. And they both helped me make the puzzles, the actual puzzles. That's awesome. Um, I also think that it's great that you specifically um, gave credit to them as part of the book um, as like its own kind of special section. Um, was that, how did that go? So was that something that as you were writing the book, you were coordinating with them, like as the book was being written or was it like, before, after, something like that? So I had a draft and I okay. knew I needed a puzzle like in this place and I knew, knew I needed another puzzle in this place. And so then I talked to them and said, what kind of puzzle do you think would go well here? Um, and Brendan, um, he's the, the word guy, right? Um, and he even suggested, you know, there's some word puzzles that he suggested that we try, right? And together, you know, we would, he would construct it and I would see, play with it and see if it worked in the book. And, 
if it did, we would keep it. And if it didn't, I would say, can we try something else? So it was really collaborative, which is why I, I do give them credit. I mean, without them, there would be no puzzles in the book at all. Yeah. I think it's kind of neat that you gave them a puzzle making puzzle in a way because it was all because <laughs> it had to fit into a specific right. already kind of made thing. Oh, believe me, I'm sure, like, I'm sure Brendan wasn't that thrilled actually. Like he just, <laughs> the new book, he just created one for me, and it, it took a, it was it was a, one of those that took many rounds of going back and forth. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's fascinating. I I really so. And I wonder if it's coincidental or, or not, but um, recently me and my girlfriend have been doing these. Um, there's these little things that are like exit rooms in a box. They're like mm -hmm. little like it's like a basically a series of riddles that you have to like figure out to like get to the goal. And they're like we got the novice one, which is like 10 year olds should be able to figure this out. And we're sitting down and we're going through this thing, the two of us together. And it's just like we're we're reasonably intelligent people and just banging our heads together. And I think the thing that I would always go back to is if, if they're giving us this, they gave us a way to find the answer. So we have to have faith that it's somewhere here. Like it's not unsolvable. So like, yeah, there's a whole kind of puzzle mentality I get into to get through those things. And it's just little, like little riddles and stuff, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a deal. Yeah, I mean that's what when I say that like I I love the concept of puzzles, but then I, <laughs> if I get stuck in one, I kind of panic because I need to I really want to solve it. Um, and you know sometimes I I'm not that terrible at them. You know I do crossword puzzles and I you know I I do Wordle almost every day and you know I love word puzzles, but um, yeah, there's there's something about them and I the more. Um, I think about it, have thought about it after finishing writing the puzzle master is like how narrative is kind of like a puzzle, right? And especially a mystery or a thriller, you mm -hmm. know, where you, you're given these clues, these sets of circumstances, and you're sort of entrapped in the rules of that game or that puzzle. Exactly. And the puzzle constructor, which I guess would be me with the novel, has is funneling you into certain situations that make you react in certain ways and make you feel things and allow you to connect with ideas and people that you wouldn't have done before. And so for me, the, I think the biggest revelation in writing this book was really that how much of um, a puzzle experience writing is from finding the plot to um, executing, you know, like writing it to even, even publishing, like all of it is, is very much a puzzle experience, a puzzly experience, <laughs> a puzzly experience. That's so true. And, um, I, I probably talk too much about like storytelling and, and stuff like that. Um, just in my norm, my non podcast life where, um, to me, there's a big thing in, in storytelling where it's like, when you establish this thing had this consequence, at the beginning of the book. And then you reinforce it by doing a similar thing with a similar outcome later in the book. To me, you're telling me this is a rule of the story so that I can expect later on when those type, you know, like you're, you're setting up guidelines, you're, you're drawing me down a path or whatever. So I totally agree with you that um, whether it's intentional or not, the construction of a story definitely is, has that element to it where it's like rules and, um, uh, things like that. There's, there's a structure to it that, um, 
there's a logic to it. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like it's a really archetypal human one, right? Like we love it. Like even, you know, you could read the Bible as like a horror novel or a mystery, you know, like very ancient texts are about finding meaning and having narrative consequences. And, you know, this person married this person and had this child who grew up and did this horrible thing or that wonderful thing, right? Like all of that is human nature and narrative. And I think what what has been so fun about the puzzle master is that I'm kind of making it more meta, right? Like I'm taking all this under, you know, underlying stuff that we all uh, kind of understand uh, physically almost, or, you know, archetypally in our lives about storytelling and making it really sort of on the surface of the book Mm -hmm. and playing with it. And that's really fun. Um, I hope that people, I hope that people feel that, you know, that, that have that connection. Yeah. Well, and then I was thinking too, like you said at some point earlier in the conversation about magic, um, the way that a story is told, the author is basically doing something to make you feel a certain way so that the outcome feels kind of magical in a way too. So like it's another form of, of you could be, it can be interpreted as magic. Yeah. I mean, transporting us, right? Like my favorite authors transport me someplace Mm -hmm. and you know, However they do that, whether it's in historical fiction or a thriller or um, something really scary or, you know, whatever. Um, The best authors for me are the ones that just lift me out of my own experience and and take me someplace. Yes. Yeah, I agree. So we talked a ton about Puzzle Master. And um, because it's not out yet, I want to encourage everybody to pre-order and get that thing going, get your libraries to get it, all that kind of stuff. Um, but we've we've talked a bunch about that. I'm curious about a couple of things. And uh, it came up earlier that you um, write, you're the, you, you write horror reviews for the New York Times. And I want to say when um, the New York Times shows up on the weekend, um, the Sunday, I always, the first thing, my girlfriend hands me the book review and I flip open and I see who's done reviews. So one of the first things I do is I look for your name. So you are, you're a presence on my Sundays pretty much pretty regularly, um, whether you have, have contributed or not, but, um, uh, is horror important to you, uh, or is that just kind of what you're doing for that specific, uh, publication? So as I, I think I mentioned earlier, I kind of came up reading horror novels right like and I think I didn't the the one the really incredible thing about reading as a kid is that there's no filter right you're just picking up books I mean or I was paperbacks at the library and just trying them out and reading them and the ones that really grabbed me uh were horror um or kind of you know different genres of horror you know I loved as I said, like Anne Rice, and I loved gothic horror. I loved um, uh, Edgar Allan Poe when I was a little bit older. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that was sort of my thing. But it went away, you know, for me for a long time. As, you know, I I wanted to be a writer. I was going to write sort of uh, intellectual or literary novels. I went in this path where I wrote, you know, a, a sort of uh, a, a memoir about my family. Like I went in this totally different path. And I never, and I do love, I love the genre and I know a lot about it, but I wouldn't say that it's like my primary genre, even though the ancestor is Gothic, is considered Gothic, Mm -hmm. um, which is a subcategory of horror. And there are horror elements 
in uh, in the Puzzle Master for sure, and in Angelology as well. In all of my books, it's there. But so I was completely. Um, I guess someone saw that in me more than I saw it in myself. And they asked me to do this column for the New York Times book review. It's called Dark Matters. And it combines sort of the, the subcategories of horror, right? Um, there's some, like I'll do, you know, for example, in the past I've uh, reviewed crime horror novels or gothic horror novels or, you know, romantic horror novels. Like I, there's lots of mixing it up in, in horror. You know, people mm-hmm. think that horror is only like slasher. Uh, slasher books and just Stephen King type um, supernatural or, you know, gory stuff. There's so, there's a huge range. And one of my goals as a reviewer has been to pull out these sort of different elements of horror and, and highlight them. And, and also to really show that like a lot of women write horror novels, right? Like I think in the past, and I started going through the, the, the book review actually, from even 10 years ago or 15 years ago and pulling out the horror columns and reviews and so much of it was men. Um, and so one, you know, one of my uh, goals as a reviewer has been to highlight these sort of, you know, under uh, respected elements yeah. of horror. And, you know, women have been writing horror from the beginning Mary Shelley, for example, literally the beginning of horror, yeah. <laughs> literally the, the very beginning. And so, yeah, I love that element of it, but I mean, to answer your question, I'm not sure that, I think I, I can't be really categorized as a horror writer. And I think that that might be good for me as a reviewer because I'm not in the mix with those writers in the same way. Like I'm not going to Stoker Con, right. And hoping right. to win an award. I'm not going there and people pitching me their, their books or whatever for the book review. It's just a very separate thing. Like sure. I am, I consider myself uh, more of uh, like literary thrillers or thrillers straight up um, or supernatural thrillers, right? Like there's always a, an element of supernatural in my book. So yeah, I, yeah. yeah, it's pretty separate. Um, I, I, I love that you brought up the idea of like women writing horror and how that it maybe was underrepresented. And I've been thinking recently that like, it's not that um, suddenly there's, tons of women writing fantastic horror. I feel like there's been a change where they're kind of getting more exposure maybe or something yeah. like it. Well, it's I've not this, been there. Right. Yeah, they, been right. There. That's, <laughs> and it's just a matter of like times are, are changing where um, it's not as, I don't know, kind of like male dominated and, and junky maybe as it once was or, or whatever. But um, yeah, I feel like there's so many incredible voices now, but also they're there to discover from the past as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I have been thrilled to sort of rediscover Daphne du Maurier, right? Who wrote The Birds, you know, the short story, The Birds mm-hmm. that um, Hitchcock made into, he, you know, Hitchcock took a lot of her short stories and, and a lot of her stories and and, and um, made them into films, but also wrote Rebecca. You know, there's just so many um, women writers who can be categorized as horror um, that we're just seeing now or that they've always been there, but, you know, we're able to rediscover them. Yeah. Um, and then kind of the final thing, um, because you had mentioned very 
surprisingly and excitingly to me that um, now we're talking about a series as opposed to an individual book. Um, you're working on the new book or is there kind of like a release date in the plans already? So I'm working on the new book um, and there's not a release date yet. Uh, hopefully it's going to be in a year or two. I'm, cool. you know, I'm well into it. So I started it right after finishing the puzzle master. So um, yeah, it's called the puzzle box. Uh, and um, Mike Brink is brought to Japan to, open a Japanese puzzle box that has been locked for over 150 years. I love it. That's awesome. Yeah. That's very, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's very exciting. And I feel like that's kind of the lamest thing to do too. Like when I talk to an author and I'm like, what's the next thing when <laughs> you're, you're like, I'm, I'm trying to release this thing, buddy, but I've already read it. So now I'm like, I, I'm hungry for more. So that's, that's why that question always happens. It's kind of like an author though, right? Like, you know, at this stage, you know, when we're, when we're talking about the book that's being published, we're all, we're working on something else. So our mind yeah. is sort of in another place. Yeah. The other thing, someone told me once, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Stephen Hall. He wrote the Rorschach texts. Um, he was talking about how he had like a good decade between the, you know, the book Rorschach texts and then the one that came out recently. So he got really good at talking about Rorschach texts because he talked about it so much, but then I talked to him at the very beginning of the release of his book, Maxwell's Demon, and he hadn't formulated a lot of his thoughts yet. So like, not only are you maybe working on another project, but now you have to go in and like, think about how do I talk about this story because I have to promote it. So that's got to be an extra layer too. <laughs> yeah, it always is. Um, yeah, it's, it's true. It's another layer. Um, Danielle, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to talk to me and getting way into concepts I didn't think we were going to get into. It was an incredible conversation. So. It was really fun. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And now I regret um, that we didn't get to talk the same way about Ancestor back in the day. <laughs> it would have been fun. Well, we can do a makeup. We can always reschedule and do a makeup one if you want. Yeah, well, there's always puzzle box too. So, <laughs> oh yeah, there's a puzzle box, and you now are the arc party, so you have to be before yeah. publication, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Okay.